This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're doing a little film podcast here, people. Strap the fuck in. (laughs) Actually, do strap the fuck in. This week is going to be a wild one. This is quite the double feature. (laughs) Quite the double feature this week. Uh, And it kind of... It it kind of... uh, nicely compliments something that I wanted to read at the top of the episode because we got an email yeah. uh, from a listener that we usually read during our bonus episodes, but some we will occasionally bring them to the to the main feed. And this one in particular just struck me because it brings to light something that I've noticed about us as well. So it's an email from Erin. <laughs> Erin <laughs> uses she, her pronouns. And Erin says, hey, movie people. Love you so much. Your friendship is inspiring and brings endless topics of conversation to me and my friends. Just putting my toddler down for bed and thinking about your recent recommendations that I have in my list. Currently, The Elephant Man, The Exorcist, I Can Make You Love Me, which is one of her own movies that she added in, The Shining and Dr. Sleep, Kingsman, One Hour Photo, The Machinist, Mm. The Outfit, Hereditary, Midsummer. (laughs) <laughs> Truly planning to watch slash rewatch all of these, but any recs for a happy, chill summer day or just an in-the-background flick with a two-year-old? I'm a school psychologist, so I have summers off, and I'm sometimes looking for something a little more upbeat. Haha. <laughs> Lots of love, Erin. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> I have noticed this as well, that we tend towards the dark. We tend towards the darkness. You definitely do. This is like all your movies. <laughs> I think my, The Exorcist is mine, but this is this is straight out of the Daniel Henderson playbook. I like a dark fucking movie. I really Same. do. Same. I really do. And so I kind of feel bad because I'm like, oh, we don't have any recommendations that you could put on in the background <laughs> when you're hanging out with a two-year-old unless you want to traumatize that two-year-old. Yeah, exactly. But you know, you know how parents are always, I don't know if you follow any parents on Instagram and they're always posting like core memory where they're like guessing that they're giving their kid a good memory but it remains to be seen. Mm. So it's basically just projecting like, I'm giving my kid a good time, see? You can have core memories that are pretty dark too. I gotta say, I think that's where most of this list comes from for me is I spent a lot of my childhood watching very dark fucking movies with my grandmother. So core memory. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and also too, I was actually thinking about this the other day about, I don't know. I don't know what triggered it. I don't know if it's when we got that email saying that we were grumps or uh, I just was sort of looking at my my watch list and going like, what is wrong with me? But I've talked about this on the podcast before. I don't know. I do love dark movies. And I don't know if it's because I feel like 
Maybe it's like some weird goth tendency within me to just like want to like watch intense shit. Like, I'm like, I don't know. I just like to think I, I, I'm not saying it's perfect all the time. I mean, sometimes we watch things and it gives us nightmares, even if we're like seasoned weirdo, dark movie yeah. professionals. But I don't know. I don't know why I like to be taken to those places more than the other happier place, you know? Right. And I think, and I don't shy away from the happy films. I just think the darker movies, I I, I like watching things that explain humanity or kind of reference the human condition more often. Yes. And so I think that's why I'm kind of leaning towards the dark movies, but it it just struck me as totally hilarious. Cause I'm like, I, I have no idea what to recommend. If you have a two year old in the background, yeah. um, I don't know, put on fucking what's that blue dog cartoon that we talked about once. I don't know. There's some dog oh. cartoon. Bluey pop B- Paw Patrol. Bluey. Oh yeah. Wait, put Daniel on, Tiger. Daniel Tiger. Daniel Tiger. Put on. Da- yeah. That's as dark. That's as like as light as I can get for a child. Is like put on an actual child thing. Because um, I can't even recommend an '80s movie because you'll be watching a kid's quote unquote '80s movie, and then suddenly they're like, "There's a whole plot about like incest or fucking like murder or something." Like even yeah. '80s kids movies didn't care about kids. So well, right. And then I was thinking about. <laughs> Like, movies that play on cable all the time that are just, like, on in the background mm. movies, like, you know, sort of, to Aaron's point, just, like, something you can kind of forget. But even stuff like that, I mean, like, Forrest Gump is on TV at all times, anywhere in the world, but that movie has fucked up moments. Like, there's somebody high on heroin and about to jump <laughs> off of a ledge of an apartment building, and, like, <laughs> you know, even watching, like, fucking sweet home Alabama or something, there's like, you know, oh, bound God. to be something that's like not really that fun. I don't yeah. know. It's weird. Like, it's hard to say. I, I find it funny that that is something that I'm clearly lacking in my film watching tendencies is how to recommend a light film. But I also know that because it's summer, we actually have quite a few lighter and funnier than we're used to giving you films coming up. So they're not two-year-old. Nothing is two-year-old appropriate that we do, but they're definitely, we're taking a turn for summer, folks. Like, we are definitely in our sunshine period and going to bring you a lot of fun this summer. Yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, what is the lightest movie that I enjoy? I mean, maybe The Princess Bride? That movie is really warm-hearted and beautiful. But then there's also the giant rats and the falling into the quicksand. There's dark moments there. Andre the Giant on fire. (laughs) Yes. Yes. There's elements to it. I mean, same thing with The Wizard of Oz, like we talked about. I mean, as much as it's, you know, such an amazing film and a family film, Flying Monkeys and That Witch. I mean, there's horror elements too, so... Yeah, yeah, it is. It is not. It's not easy to pick a pure lighthearted film, but so I apologize that we can't do that for you, Aaron. But I do promise that your list will get better or lighter just because we're going to have lighter films this summer. Um, so for your benefit, you'll be having a lot of fun. Your child will still be in the bluey Daniel Tiger territory. But I also it just made me laugh thinking about how I think if we were like I feel like we've been friends 
across many lifetimes. We will be friends across many lifetimes. If we were alive during the Victorian era, we would have been like those two weird aunts that they sent to the seaside to recover, quote unquote, and just left us there like on the beach wrapped up in a blanket, bitching in the winter about everything. <laughs> yeah, they're like, they never had kids and they never got married. And we, we sent them to the sea to see if that would liven their spirits and it did not. So we left them there. <laughs> What what's the is it ethyl what's the drug that they used to like a it was like a painkiller drug laudanum that's right we talk about laudanum <laughs> a lot being on we're just, laudanum we're just hoping their spirits rise in any way and then they just don't like I just feel like that's prescribed <laughs> for us across the lifetime so it made me laugh but but I love that you're building this list Erin I'm sorry that you could probably only watch it in chunks. Um, between your incredible full-time job of school psychology and your your raising of a child, like I commend you for even trying to find the time or being able to find the time to watch any movie. So we'll probably we promise it will add some lighter ones to your list um, if you keep listening throughout the summer. Next week in particular will be super fun. But yeah, I think that as far as two year olds go, like I I I am fearful when people tell me their teenagers listen to this show. I'm like, oh god damn, what are they what are they hearing? Yeah, I can't. I'm like looking at her list going, good luck with a double feature of one hour photo in the machinist. Like, Godspeed, salute emoji to you. I would be like, this is too stylish and fucked up for me to continue. I hereditary, hereditary and midsummer for a, a kind of a new parent. Good luck. I know. I was like, you're a mom, huh? I don't know if you want to be watching any of these Ari Oster movies at all. <laughs> Good luck. Oh, but I love I just love that you wrote in and I promise we'll put a little couple of, of lighter movies on your list for you. So thank you, Aaron. Well, we have quite a theme this week. You came up with the name once again. Do you want to tell the people what it is? Our theme this week is now seating group three. And we decided to do some movies about traveling. And wow, did we go to opposite ends of the spectrum. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> this is easily the most demonic double feature we've ever done. <laughs> Like, it's just so, it's so, like, the darkest movie and the lightest movie together in the same sitting. I, yeah, so I think, um, I don't know, summertime, you're, you know, traveling, like, you know, I, I, I basically earlier this year went to Europe and, uh, spent a couple weeks there and it was a really good time. And I know you're doing some traveling this summer too. And so I don't know. I just think we both were just thinking like, let's talk about like international destinations, perhaps. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Cause I'm kind of getting back out into the world in a bigger way and I'm taking more flights and going more places now and kind of going back to, to what my life used to be pre pre COVID or in the the height of COVID, because I'm still I'm still that bitch. I'm still wearing a mask in an airport. I'm sorry, like it's oh, actually too. I'm not sorry. I'm wearing a mask in an airport, but you know my life in general is kind of smoothed out a little bit to where I feel comfortable traveling again, um, and I'm excited about traveling again. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that my my grandmother is no is 
in her nursing home. She's no longer living with me, so I don't have to fear leaving and coming back and making her sick. And also that I can leave because she's not (laughs) here anymore. Yeah. So I'm just getting psyched. And I just, every time I think about traveling and movies about traveling, it's like, gets gets the bug going. Yeah, for sure. I, um... I will say this, like, I feel like, I I feel like my movie, the sort of, like, circumstantially in the location that it is in, I won't say it paints a pretty picture of the place that it's in, and uh, we will definitely get into that. However, your film is just so wonderful and actually makes me want to visit the place that it's filmed. You know, mm-hmm. there's just so, so many differences between my movie and your movie this week, like color-wise, tone-wise, <laughs> story-wise. <laughs> like, and also just the, the different spectrums of life. Like, you know, my film is about marriage, your film is about prison. <laughs> <laughs> One is about like creating a new life and moving forward, and the other was about stopping a life right in its tracks. Yeah. I promise I did not purposely want to go dark, really, this week. I don't know why. I feel like we both were wanting to, at some point, or maybe because we had done Alan Parker movies before and on prior episodes, we were talking about doing Midnight Express, and then it just happened to be this week, and then you just happened to pick a movie that's totally opposite of it. But I think it still works for the theme. The theme is it's fun to see two completely different representations of kind of the same theme, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I was going to pick, I, my instinct was to go dark as well. Like I was going to pick Broke Down Palace um, as a nice kind of bookend to your film. <laughs> yeah. It's always present and top of mind for me to not always pick movies that feature white people or or by, made by white people. So I was thinking about some travel films that don't feature white people. So I couldn't do what Broke Down Palace, but that would have been, that would have been the proper double feature <laughs> to go with yeah. your film. Well, but also too, it's like maybe in another in another world we could have addressed that as its own topic as sort of like what happens when white people travel abroad <laughs> sometimes and what happens. I think that should be a theme called white people trying it because in both instances <laughs> they're trying it. Yeah, I haven't seen Broke Down Palace in a very long time. Yeah. But all I remember from the from the movie and just the subsequent like I guess PR or marketing push was the clip of Claire Dane screaming, I didn't do it. <laughs> like they, they had that in the trailer for the film or something. And I just remember when they fucking promoted the fuck out of that movie. It was just Claire Dane screaming, I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my movie for the theme now stating group three is a movie from 1978 uh, it was based on a book of the same name written by Billy Hayes and William Hoffer the screenplay is by Oliver Stone directed by Alan Parker and it's called Midnight Express what is a crime what is punishment it seems to vary from time to time, place to place. So uh, just to get this out of the way immediately, I, I, I'm I not trying to always bring 
this podcast back to wrestling every week. But <laughs> if it happens, it happens. I have to admit, I had heard of the tag team Midnight Express <laughs> before I had heard of the movie or book Midnight Express. What a name for a wrestling tag team also. <laughs> like, Wow. There was a lot. I think there was also a tag team named the Rock and Roll Express. <laughs> Do you remember them? I don't remember them. <laughs> I, I think they they were totally very different. Like I think the Rock and Roll Express was like hot pink. I, I see hot the color hot pink and blue, and then I feel like Midnight Express wore black and like sunglasses. I don't I don't really truly remember. I'll have to look it up, but um. Yeah, I have to. I just have to say, I know I knew Midnight Express, the tag team before the movie, but um, makes sense. So uh, obviously, we just did the movie Birdie recently. So we've talked about Alan Parker, the director of this movie. We talked about fame in a prior episode. So you know, listen did to those do- episodes. Oh, Birdie! I thought you said Bernie. I'm like, we did Bernie. Oh, <laughs> no, <laughs> although we should do Bernie. That's a good movie. I'm down. You're talking about the Jack, the Jack Black movie? Yeah. I was like, oh my God, did we do that movie? Have, have I forgotten? No. No. But yes, we did Birdie and yes, talked about Alan Parker. Sorry. Yeah. So go listen to those episodes if you want to hear a little bit more about Alan Parker. But um, look, folks, I, I think you know Al- Oliver Stone. We, we've we talked about him too during our um, National Born Killers episode. You know, you know him as a director, but he wrote a lot, too. And he wrote this film. And another person you may have heard of, the king of the banging soundtracks, Giorgio Moroder. And this film was actually nominated for a ton of Oscars the year that came out and won two of them, Best Screenplay and Best Score. So Giorgio Moroder won a, um Oscar for the soundtrack to Midnight Express. So having said all that, here's who I want to talk about a little bit more this week. And it's um, the actor, the lead actor of Midnight Express, Brad Davis. Okay. So before I saw Midnight Express, I saw this movie he was in named Curel. And it was directed by the great Rainier Werner Fassbender. Okay. Which if you have not seen Curel... I don't even know what to tell you Um, because I don't know. It it is a very provocative film. It's an LGBTQ classic. I would say I managed to somehow get this movie onto TCM at four o'clock in the morning once many years ago. And I thought for sure I was going to get fired. Like I was like, I'm going to be fired for putting Carell on TCM unedited, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, one of Fassbender's, masterpieces and brad davis was played the lead character in that film and he was also in chariots of fire he was he did a lot of tv work but midnight express was kind of like the first movie that really kind of put him on the map it was kind of a star making role for him right and just to give you a little bit of of a biography about brad davis he was originally from florida i have to say that and he went to titusville high school which is right down the street from where my family lives I think that's really interesting for me personally. But according to his actual written biography, which was penned by his widow, who is a casting director named Susan Bluestein. So Brad Davis grew up in a 
kind of a harsh environment. He had a really rough childhood. His father was an alcoholic. His mother had sexually abused him. Mm. And as an adult, Brad was an alcoholic and an IV drug user. And even though he eventually got clean, he actually contracted HIV in the mid-80s. And this was something that he hid until his death in 1991. So he died at the age of 41, which is not old at all. And there's this article in the New York Times that I read where his widow, his wife, um, essentially kind of talked about, you know, their life after he had tested positive and just kind of through the years of him having to live in secrecy about having HIV. Mm. And remember, this is like 1985, like, you know, mid to late 80s. It was like such a stigma to even be associated with the disease, right? Yeah. And his wife had talked about, you know, kind of all the things that they were doing to conceal his Ill- illness from people, including, you know, medicine that he was taking, which apparently never had his name on any of the bottles. And it was essentially medication that he was getting from people who had just recently died. So he was taking their medications because he did not want to be prescribed medication because then obviously he'd have to disclose the fact that he was sick. Right. Right. And, you know, she talked about this in terms of how hiding his disease was probably like, like if he, didn't hide it, he might have had a better kind of quality of life while he was sick, which arguably, yeah, he probably would have. But I think he just really wanted to keep working and he wanted to support his wife and his child. And again, knowing that there was just such fear and stigma about HIV and AIDS in the 80s and 90s, he just felt like if he had gone public with it, he would have never worked again, right? Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, I think, after his health was really failing, he actually made the decision to end his life by assisted suicide. So, you know, when he died in 91, that's kind of how that happened. Mm -hmm. I just think that's all really interesting um, because, you know, knowing that he was in, you know, some really important films, including this one, I just, you know, you like watch this film and you're like, do I know that guy? How do I recognize that guy? And then you kind of go into this mode of like wanting to read about him because he just had such an interesting life. You know what I mean? Yeah. And just and passed away so young, truly. Yeah. And it's, again, it's indicative of another time and how ignorant people were about HIV and AIDS. And I'm not saying that they're not anymore. There are still plenty of people who are very ignorant about it, but um, it was really a a cultural and public death sentence to receive um, any news that somebody had HIV or AIDS, regardless of whether they were currently sick or in the process of dying or whatever, just have just knowing and did a lot of lives and livelihoods. So it was really, you know, very terrifying time. And again, amidst that ignorance, it was a lot of stigma that came with it. And it's, there was a lot of blaming and shaming going on where like, oh, well, he was a drug user, so fuck him or, you know, like things like that. So it was just really, it's really sad to think about people having to withhold that part of their life from, like you said, exactly in a way that would have enhanced their life while they were still alive. They'd been able to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. 
And I, I just think, you know, he probably had so much more to do had he had lived, you know, because he was, I mean, he was in such, I mean, there was a Midnight Express, Chariots of Fire, and Cruel for me. I'm like, wow, that's three really incredible films. He probably could have done a lot. And um, it's yeah. just sad. But he, he was, in this film, I mean, I think it's, the film is c- clearly all about him and his character um, and his physicality, you know, there are scenes of him like working out where I'm just like, he is so incredibly fit, you know, and he was, he's just a very attractive, beautiful man. And then just the idea that he died so young is, is sad, you know, but um, the other thing that I want to mention about this movie too, is that this was based on a true story. And uh, it was the story of, you know, Billy Hayes, who, of course, spent time in a Tur- in the Turkish prison system. And I've read a, a lot of stuff about, like, kind of his take on the film once it came out. And, you know, obviously, he came out right off the bat and said there was a lot of differences. There was a lot of, like, kind of artistic license in the film that didn't happen in his actual experience. Yeah, I read in, in an article in Variety and that came out in 2020 that he basically called Oliver Stone a master of revisionist history. Yeah. Um, Because there's so much that happened in the movie didn't happen to him or wasn't part of his experience, but... Yeah. And this it's interesting to read, too, about... Because, like I will say about this film, I mean, it's it, it does not portray Turkish people in a good light whatsoever. I mean, kind of to, like, a cartoonish degree, which is very unfortunate. Because I think that at the time, I don't want to profess to say I don't know. I don't know what things were like in the late 70s in terms of of this because I wasn't alive. Uh, And I was certainly not watching film or ingesting culture. But it was that thing of like, this was obviously a choice that was made in that era that looks fucking insane now. Like, you're just like, why is this movie so cartoonishly racist in this way? I, I know that Billy Hayes was disappointed by that when mm-hmm. the film came out. And I know that Oliver Stone has actually apologized for it, like later, that he was disappointed in himself that he kind of had given this kind of one note read on, you know, all these Turkish people. So, but that is a huge conversation about the film that people have is just, there's just really not a positive Turkish character in this film at all. Right. Right. But there's also other things about the film that, you know, didn't happen, according to Billy Hayes. Like he said that he did not experience any rapes or sexual violence when he was in the in the jail. And, you know, obviously that happens quite a bit in the film. So there's a little, you know, he said that, you know, there was no girlfriend with him when he got arrested. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of differences, artistic license for sure. So let me just do a one-sentence synopsis really quick. Midnight Express is about a young man who is sent to jail in Turkey after trying to smuggle hash and has a terrifying experience. That is the general gist of the film. So just to kind of go over a little bit of the plot. So right at the beginning, there's this college kid, white college kid, named Billy Hayes. He's in the airport in Turkey. He's with his white girlfriend. You know, like I said, younger. And the beginning of the film is him. (laughs) I did not know this when I first watched it. But I was like, 
Why is this guy putting chocolate bars in <laughs> tin foil and taping it to his chest? Okay, I did not know that it was hash until they told me it was hash. But when you first watch the film and you don't know anything about the story, you're like, that looks like chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I don't know why he's taping it to his chest. But as I as I found out a few minutes later, it's actually two kilos of hash. And this kid, Billy Hayes, is sweating walking I, through this airport. There's a part where he goes to the bathroom and he fills an airport sink with water and splashes his face because he's like so hot, so hot, just sweating it out so hard. I would rather get caught smuggling hash than fill a sink of air in an airport bathroom full of water and put that water oh. on my face. I was like, he's he's wearing his not wearing a his character is not wearing a wig. The actor is certainly wearing a bad wig, and I'm like, imagine being Brad Davis having to sweat underneath that bad wig. Ooh. <laughs> Good lord. But he's like pouring down sweat. Heartbeat sound is pumping. Like he's like, you know, trying to do the thing. He's trying to get away with with the task. And it's a lot of hash. Like if he had just had a couple of bricks, he probably would have gotten away with it. Yeah. It was a lot. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And just, and honestly, just when you think that he's a breeze to fly, he gets stopped and they find it underneath his clothes. One one thing I will say about this movie that I think is really interesting are the, is that there are little to no subtitles in the film, which is interesting. I think that's an interesting move. It kind of complements the alienation and mistrust that Oliver Stone and Alan Parker were kind of cultivating about the Turkish system because you don't know what they're saying. So you're kind of like left to look at their movements and how emphatically they're speaking and kind of decide, like, are they saying something good or bad? Are they being positive about this guy? Are they trying to throw him away for life? Like, you're just really left in an era of an area of kind of uncertainty, which I'm assuming was done to also put you in the place of the character um, of Billy, which is like, he didn't know what was going on. He didn't speak the language. And was ultimately his whole his fate was left to a system that he didn't understand and a language that he didn't understand. So I think that kind of emphasized it for the viewer. Yeah, it kind of puts you in that position. So you're in the Billy position of being in a foreign country, not speaking the language and being in trouble. Right. Mm -hmm. So after Billy gets busted, he he almost immediately is approached by an American um, who is not Jerry Reed, by the way. It is the actor Bo Hopkins. And it's funny because I have confused those two people forever. Much like, like I have confused Midnight Express and Midnight Run for most of my childhood, most of my teen oh, years. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, uh, what's the other Midnight movie that... No, am I thinking of... I'm thinking of Starlight Express. <laughs> 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 a very different movie. <laughs> Permanent oh, yeah. Midnight, Midnight Run, Midnight Express, Starlight Express. 
Jesus. But I confuse Jerry Reed and Bo Hopkins a lot. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, he, so Bo Hopkins' character shows up and is kind of like, hey, you know, you're in trouble here. Like, you got to tell us, like, who you got the drugs from. And so Billy sort of points them into the direction of this cab driver who gave him the drugs and they go down to the market where this, um, you know, cab driver's hanging out. But then Billy kind of pulls this move where he kind of runs away Right. And I guess it's because he feels like it, it, he's kind of screwed either way. Like, even if he points out who gave him the drugs, like they're still going to take him to jail. Right. So he just has this moment where he's like, well, I'm just going to run away and they have to chase him. And of course, you know, he gets caught. And there are times in this movie where I, yeah, this is like a white kid from America who is. I don't know, maybe because he has a, a certain amount of privilege. You find out later his father is like a representative, like a, a like from the U.S. government. So it's kind of like, okay, here's a kid who probably, I don't know, has been evading trouble his whole life, and now he's getting busted. Well, what's also it also made me think of, you know, there is a a point where, you know, and I'm not sure if it it is due to his father or not, but there's a point in the movie where you almost forget his crime because they're so focused on how he's being treated in this prison and his experiences in the prison that you kind of forget that he actually did commit a crime. And I'm not sure that that, you know, I want to come down on one side or the other about what's warranted or what's due, but it made me think of that teenager in 1994, Michael Fay, in Singapore, who mm-hmm. committed vandalism, and they wanted to cane him, and everyone was like, "No, you can't cane him." And I'm like, "Dude, any country I visit, I am well aware to not fuck up because I either don't know their laws and I'm afraid, or I do know their laws and I'm afraid. And if you go to a place where you're fucking, they have a vandalism act that you could get in trouble for, you could be made an example of." That's a crime. I'm sorry. Like, I, I know that there's just these instances where a lot this comes up quite often um, politically and legally where it's like, well, he might have committed a crime in your country, but he's from our country. And I'm like, yeah, vandalism is a fucking crime here, too. Like, what do you want? <laughs> like, there's yeah. a certain amount of hubris that a lot of people carry forward into the world. And it takes an act like this to stop them in their tracks and make them think maybe about their actions, um, which, again, i sounding like a total fucking boomer, which I hate. But it's just interesting to me that in this film, they very quickly help you to forget the crime and just focus yeah. on the experience, which is, I think, what a lot of people want to want you to do when white people are going abroad and committing sins. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's American hubris, though. That's the thing, yeah. is that it's like, it's like going to a foreign country and feeling like you, you know, you're the king colonizer of the world so you're able to kind of go and do as you please and there's a you know any consequences for shit that you pull and i'm just like yeah i don't believe that there's a lot of people that do though there's americans that go abroad and they just pull fucking tricks Mm -hmm. and then weirdly enough they have an infrastructure in america where they can get their dad to come bail them out or try to bail them out and they can get lawyers and that kind of stuff which is kind of what happens at midnight express because essentially you know billy goes to jail And so he's now in the prison system there. And, you know, the first night, basically, he he wants a blanket. They don't give him one. One of the other prisoners tells him to go get a blanket from another another cell. And then, 
you know, he gets beaten for it eventually the next day. And then quickly sort of starts, you know, moving into the social scene of the jail, which includes Randy Quaid, the actor Randy Quaid, who is a maniac, or as my as my mother would say, maniac of the highest order. Like he like I was like, is he like this in every film? Like he just was a, a maniac in every film. <laughs> And in hey, real life too, I will typecast, say, right? Typecast for sure. <laughs> so here's a he's a guy that stole two candlesticks from a mosque and now is in this prison. There's another guy that he hangs out with who I think is called Eric the Swede. I don't know if that's a, a, a official name, but he's a Swedish guy named Eric, drug drug smuggler. And then there's um a, a man named Max, an older gentleman, played by the great John Hurt. We just talked about him in The Elephant Man. He's the guy that's been in the jail the longest. You know that character. And like every jail film, right? There's this guy that's been there forever. And he has a cat. He somehow gets drugs. He's also an IV drug user. So he's just like the guy that's really like, you know, in the jail, has figured out how to make it work for him, and he's kind of the cautionary tale, I think, of, of for mm. certainly for Billy at this point, right? So, Billy's dad, like I said, shows up, American guy. They actually, I have to say this before I continue, they did amazing father-son casting yeah. in this film. They look exactly the same. The, they look the related. Dad and son. <laughs> I was like, very rarely do you see like two non-related actors look like each other when they're playing family members. I mean, they nailed it for this. But um, the dad comes, he's like, look, I got lawyers, like we're going to hook you up, blah, 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 blah. You're not going to be in jail. And um, unfortunately, though, Billy does go to jail and he gets a four-year jail sentence. Now, the reason why he gets four years is because... The judge apparently likes him, takes a shine to him, but also he is he's basically serving for a lesser charge, which is that he's going to get possession instead of smuggling. Smuggling carries a much higher punishment than simple possession, and so they managed to get him on the possession charge, so he's only doing four years. But he's already freaked out, because four years is a lot of time for him, right? Yeah. So, in the jail... He's doing his time. He's hanging out with his little squad of Eric the Swede and Randy Quaid's character and Max. And, you know, Max basically is telling Billy, like, you're never going to get out of here. Everybody's corrupt. Everybody is in on the take. The only way you could really escape your scenario is by taking the Midnight Express, which is essentially a term for breaking out of jail, mm-hmm. right? So he's kind of flirting with this idea. And meanwhile, suffering from some really bad scenarios in the jail, like I said, a lot of uh, pretty nasty stereotypes amongst like the Turkish prisoners and the guards and stuff. There's this, this uh, there's a prisoner named Rifki who's kind of like, I don't know, the hall monitor, like the, he's kind of, um, 
exchanging things in order to get better treatment from the guards. And it kind of is like the tattletale that everybody hates. And there's a like a lot of drama with him. And so what ends up happening is that Billy's experiencing this horrible situation in jail. Then, as it turns out, the high court has decided to actually go back and charge him with the um, smuggling charge when he has like 53 days left in his sentence. They decide, actually, you're going to stay in jail for the next 30 years plus. So that sends Billy into the stratosphere in terms of what he's willing to do to survive, like what he's going to do with his time there, you know, So it becomes kind of this whole, that's when everything gets kicked up a notch in terms of the violence, in terms of sort of like what happens next. I kind of don't want to give it away, obviously, because I feel like there's a lot of of things that this movie is known for, like kind of things that have uh, played out in other films that I feel like if I gave it away, it would kind of give away the rest of the movie. But if you, it's it's the kind of movie, if you watch it, you'll be like, oh, I remember somebody parodied that in a movie or somebody took borrowed this scene from a movie so you you will see a lot of echoes in in other films from midnight express but yeah i mean if this movie is kind of complicated i mean obviously i think that there there's a lot of effective things happening like you really do feel bleak when you watch this film like it does its job it's promising on you know that you will feel like shit watching this movie it is bleak it is violent you know there are moments where you're like terrified for someone but then there's other things happening too where it's like oh like how do i feel about kind of this portrayal of the turkish people in this film how do i feel about the idea that this is a college kid that was stupid and got in trouble and then he's you know do i feel good about the consequences for him i don't know so it's it's one of those films. It's it's a complicated film that takes place in a foreign country and uh, <laughs> will make you think a couple things the next time you travel, I feel like. Abs- yeah, it is It is the dark side of travel. <laughs> travel <laughs> films. <laughs> but as long as you're not trying to, sc- you know, as long as you're not trying to smuggle hash or drugs, you'll probably be okay. But... It is definitely the dark side of traveling in terms of, like, what could happen if you fuck up in another country? And this is, again, a movie that I saw probably when I was way too young. And so it was always present of mind for me that, like, if I ever travel in my life, I should be on my best behavior. Not that I was ever prone to smuggling drugs, but it was just, you know, seeing movies like this kind of reinforced my own actions when I started (laughs) traveling into the world. Yeah, and there is a moment, too, where the, when the father shows up and kind of is like, son, what have you done? Like, why why did you do this? And Billy's like, for money. He wanted to take the hash, smuggle it back to America, and make money off of it. So that's like a whole other component to think about is just sort of like, okay, well, there's just a lot of big topics in the film, obviously. But... um. I think I think it's a movie that people should see if they've been curious about it, if they've heard about it. I mean, like I said, there's a lot of references to it in other films. There's like a reference to this film in The Cable Guy, 
with Jim Carrey because this scene that it parodies in Midnight Express is bleak, bleak, bleak. <laughs> okay? Like, <laughs> makes you feel like shit. I haven't seen The Cable Guy in ages, so I don't even remember what you're talking about. Yeah. I, ju- all I'm saying is if you haven't, if you've, if you've given The Cable Guy a spin recently and you haven't seen Midnight Express, I just, just watch it. Just watch it to connect the dots because I was like, it's a very funny scene in Cable Guy, but the, the, the scene that it references is so fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> so, I feel like any reference from this movie is fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's dark comedy for sure. But uh, yeah, and look, now, after we've gone through the muck, the darkness, we have found the light at the end, haven't we? With A little film. bit. A little bit. Um, my movie for our theme, Now Seating Group 3, uh, was released in 2001. It was written by Sabrina Dewan and directed by Mira Nair. And my movie is Monsoon Wedding. I don't think you're ready for marriage. I just want to settle down. So what do you do? Get married to some guy selected by mommy, daddy, you barely known him for a couple of weeks? Yeah, so my movie is definitely... There is a, a vein of darkness in my movie, but for the most part, it is um, a very lighthearted, funny film. And I first want to start by getting into who Mira Nair is, in case you're not sure, never heard her name, which I find impossible. But a lot of people don't pay attention to directors and writers the way I do, so it's fine. It's fine. Mira Nair wrote, you might have, when she first came into my line of view as a director, uh, was for a movie called Mississippi Masala. Um And that movie is on the Criterion channel right now. At the time of this recording, it's on the Criterion channel. And she also went on to direct films like The Namesake, which is based on a book by Yumpa Lahiri, um, Hysterical Blindness, uh, Vanity Fair, which is not the magazine, but the William Makepeace Thackeray novel. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And she's fascinating to me. She's so fascinating. She was born and raised in, in India, and she got a full scholarship to both Cambridge University and Harvard, and she chose Harvard, uh, where she became very interested in theater and acting. Uh, but she eventually landed on directing because, um, in an interview that I read with her, she said that it was because it was collaborative. So she kind of started as a documentarian, and her focus in her filmmaking career has usually been on Indian culture. And it definitely was present when she was starting as a documentarian, like in her first documentary, she was roaming the streets of Old Delhi and um, she was having conversations with people. And you can see her kind of documentary style of filmmaking, even in her feature films, uh, including this one, including Monsoon Wedding. There are scenes where she's, um, you know, got the camera kind of angled up towards the sky as she's in a car and you can see the wires and the people and just the way that she intercuts her scenes with scenes of actual people in Monsoon Wedding, it feels very docu- like a very documentarian thing to do because she wants you to focus on not just the family that she's portraying, but the, the system and the world that they're in. And she also had a documentary, her last documentary was about uh, amniocentesis and how it was used to determine the sex of, of different fetuses because she wanted to kind of expose the way that a lot of people in... India were aborting female fetuses um, and favoring their male offspring. 
Um, mm. So she's definitely an activist in a certain way. Like her her art has kind of an activist bent as well. And she she set up a filmmaking lab in Uganda called Meisha. And it helps train young directors. And it's kind of focused on encouraging people to tell their own stories. So I think that the reason I mention all of this is that her her life is very... It seems very finely tuned and balanced towards supporting who she is as a person overall. So she's an activist. She's focused on certain cultural aspects of things that bother her that she wants to shine a light on. She does it in her feature films. She does it in her documentaries. And a lot of her short and um, her short films and documentary documentaries at the time of this recording are on the Criterion Channel, along with um, this movie is not, but along with a lot of interviews and clips of her talking about some of her own favorite films uh, and movies that inspire her. So again, keeping with the dark theme, I was watching a lot of those clips and she was discussing one of my favorite films, which is so bleak that I don't think I can ever bring it to the pod. Uh, But she was talking about Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves. Uh, And then I started like watching kind of all these clips of her talking about these movies. And then I started clicking around the Criterion channel and I ended up watching um, Mysterious Skin again. They had a, again, last month, I think they're still up on Criterion channel. They had three Greg Araki films uh, yeah. that they were focusing on, like the Doom Generation. And I ha- there are movies that I just haven't seen in a while. So it just went from, you know, natural progression from Mira Nair to Breaking the Waves to Mysterious Skin. Uh just wanted to freak myself right out that day. So that's what I watched. Uh, See, you, you, you like to make fun of me for going on rabbit holes, but look at these rabbit holes. Oh, yeah, these I will dark jump Dark rabbit holes. <laughs> I will jump into the darkest holes to the center of the damn earth. I'm in that magma. I'm in that crust. I am in oh, there. Oh, know. We know. <laughs> and she's just, she's awesome. <laughs> she's awesome. And I also get very excited when, like, directors that I like or admire also like darkness. I just love it. Yeah. I'm like, ooh, Mira Nair loves breaking the waves. Great. But she's she's fantastic. She's really fascinating. She's she's a professor at Columbia University currently. The, the woman who wrote this movie, Sabrina Dewan, is also um, a professor, but she teaches at the Tisch School uh, in New York City. And... Sabrina was a student when she wrote this movie, the first draft of this movie. She wrote while she was still in school in one week. Wow. And she I think she, I've had one source, but I didn't I couldn't confirm it, so I don't know if it's true or not that she was a student of Mira Nair, but she definitely was um an assistant. She worked with Mira Nair after she graduated and she worked with her at Columbia and just developed a, a working relationship with her after. You know, she graduated school, uh, but she graduated from Columbia, so it's not it's not impossible that she was also a student of Mira Nair's. And she works very heavily in Bollywood, and she's still you know a very active writer. And I and Monsoon Wedding was eventually turned into a musical, which is really fun. I can't I didn't see it, but I can imagine it was a lot of fun. And this is just one of those movies that, like, from the minute I saw it, from the first time I saw it, it just really resonated with me and showed me something so beautiful and wonderful and wild. And it just stuck with me. The visuals of this movie, but the the story of this film also really stuck with me. So that's Mira Nair. I think she's fucking miraculous and cool uh, and would love to have her on the pod, quite frankly, but I'm sure she's too busy. <laughs> Too yeah, she's too busy. Famous. Yeah, being choosing between Oxford, did you say Oxford and Harvard teaching yeah. in Columbia? It's like <laughs> she 
She's just doing the uh, the tour of all the greatest schools in the in the world. She also like turns down a lot of directing jobs to work on things that are close to her heart. So she turned down one of the Harry Potter movies because she wanted to make the namesake. And I'm like, that's just fucking cool. Love it. It's fucking cool. So she's she's busy being the best. But yes. if she ever wants to get on the pod, I think we should try to have her on the pod. Uh, yeah. But yeah, this movie is just fantastic. And I'll just give you a one sentence synopsis because it is a big, sprawling film with a lot of moving parts. Uh, so my one sentence synopsis is an impending wedding brings family members from all over the globe together in New Delhi, where secrets are revealed, costs rise, hilarity ensues, and chaos reigns. <laughs> chaos reigns. It is a very chaotic Her film. Trier. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Chaos, chaos reigns. <laughs> so true. But and what's wild too is this is a this is a movie about or story about um, an arranged marriage. So we open on what is the engagement day, and this is basically going to be a four day affair. The movie stretches over the course of four days, starting with the engagement and ending ending with the wedding. So the main character there are a lot of primary characters in this film, but we open with Lalit and Pima Verma, who are the mom and dad of the daughter who is the bride. Um, So Lalit is, he's just, again, opens with like the funniest scene. He's just really pressed about this marigold gate and everyone is like running around the house like he's going to have a fucking heart attack if he doesn't calm down. (laughs) Like Mm. this this wedding is already stressing him the fuck out. And I also looked it up because I, I was curious. There's characters in the film that, Marigolds are very present in the film, and they're they're present in a lot of um, weddings in, in Indian culture. And I looked it up, and it's because um, the marigold kind of symbolizes brightness and positive energy, so it's sort of representative of the sun. And yeah. it's also associated with Lord Vishnu and Goddess Lakshmi, which were like the ideal couple in Hindu mythology. So it's very good luck, and that's why you kind of see a lot of marigolds present at a lot of... Um, weddings in in Indian culture, or at least in Hindu culture. So he's freaking out because a, a line of marigolds is basically dropped, and it's not it's not intact. <laughs> but this is how we enter the film: is him freaking out on Dubey, who is the wedding planner <laughs> slash event planner. We're going to get to him in a minute. But Lali and P- and Pimi kind of have a very a very sweet relationship, and they're just kind of they're in tune with each other. They work really well. They're just, you know, parents who are trying to get through the next few days. They're hosting a bunch of family from all over the globe. And they're just really trying to support each other through this um, while also taking care of their younger child and making sure that their daughter is ready to get married. So we have Aditi Verma, who's the daughter. Um, and also, I will say that Lalit is played by um, Nasiruddin Shah, who's a huge Bollywood actor. And if you've watch Bollywood movies at all, you've probably seen him in a, quite a few things. Um, and also Lalit Dubé, who plays Pimi, is also a great actress in general, but a great Bollywood actress. Um, I think she also directs. And um, I think it's very funny that his character is named Lalit, and then there's another character named Dubé. So there's a whole set of characters in this film with her full name, uh, which is very, very cute. So then we have Aditi, and Aditi is played by Vasundara Das, and she's just gorgeous, like just this gorgeous little doll-looking person. Um, she's the daughter of this family, but she's also the bride. And she's having this illicit affair. When we meet her, she's having this kind of illicit affair with Vikram, who's a TV host. And 
with the way we meet him is she kind of goes to the studio and sees him having this hosting this conversation about and a woman is basically dubbing a, a pornography movie, a porno, uh, to prove a point about censorship, which is very, very funny. But she's still kind of in love with this ex. He's married and he's um, you know, older than her, so it's quite an illicit affair. Uh, but she's marrying Hemant, who is the son of a family friend, and he now lives in Texas, and he's a computer engineer. And Aditi's going to move to Texas with him after the wedding, um, but they've only known each other for a couple of weeks. So she's kind of torn, you know, the, one of the primary conflicts we see when we first meet this these characters and are introduced in this film is that she's torn between what is technically a good marriage match for her versus the love that she has found in someone who's completely unavailable to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's, she and Hemant have to work that out eventually, or she has to work that out eventually. And we also have my favorite character, Rhea, Rhea Verma, who's a cousin of the family. She's unmarried. She wants to move to the U.S. and, and study creative writing. And her father has died. Um, so Lalit assumes the role of father in her life. She and her mother live with Lalit's family um, since his brother has, has died. And his sister... Lalit's sister is married to Tej Puri, who is this super rich brother-in-law who lives in the U.S. Um, And Rhea, as soon as we meet Rhea, we can understand through her body language and her eyes that she cannot stand Tej Puri. And we will Mm -hmm. eventually find out why. But she's just such a fascinating character because she's very free and not concerned with marriage and concerned with kind of pursuing her own life. But she's also carrying such a heaviness to her. And it seems... What I love about this actress, and again, the the a- actress that plays her is Shafali Shah, and what I love about this actress is she's able to kind of convey, just through movement and looks, that she's somewhat oppressed, but you can't quite tell if she's oppressed purely because of her social standing in society or because she's carrying something. There's like this real dance going on with why is she so burdened, and eventually, again, like we we do find out find out why. But I just love that I just. I just think this actress is is incredibly talented and she's just, again, not maybe the central figure in the film because of she's the bride, but she's the central figure in the film because of her, you know, the way she propels the story. So I really, really love that. And then there's other people that come, like Pimi's sister and her husband also have arrived from Oman. Rahul is Pimi's nephew from Australia. Uh, who Lalit constantly refers to as an idiot, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> and he's like, every <laughs> every young child in the family, he just calls him an idiot. He's like, you don't know anything, you're a fucking idiot. But it's done with a weird loving touch, but also sometimes not. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of got like a surfer vibe to him almost, you know? Yeah. Rahul, he, like, he shows up with a broken arm and he's just kind of like, hey man, what? Like, yeah, I went to the, to the uh, airport to pick up, you know, auntie and uncle, but I didn't see him, so I left, you know. But then as I was driving away, I realized, like, I don't even know what they look like. So he just, like, left people at the airport because he's like, whatever, man. Like, it's fine. They'll find a way. (laughs) Yeah. And he, like, lies about it. But he's kind of in love with with Aisha, who's this other cousin who comes and, and, you know, they— 
she has a tattoo and he's like really into they're both kind of outcasts and he's kind of into her outcast vibe. Yeah. And then we we have Varun, who's Aditi's little brother. And this kid is a sassy little bitch. I fucking love him. He <laughs> loves to watch TV. He wants to become a chef. He's like 10, 11 years old. He loves dancing. But his father, Lalit, is kind of concerned and worried that he's becoming too sensitive, which in essence, he's worried that he's becoming effeminate. So his plan is to send him to boarding school um, to kind of toughen him up, so to speak, and, and teach him about the hardness of life so that he turns out to be successful in the way that his father wants him to be successful. And Varun is just like not hearing it. He's like, I want to yeah. do this dance. I want to like cook. I want to watch TV. But he's kind of in this, again, generationally a weird mode, because we've already found out that Tej Puri, who's the uncle from the States that Rhea can't stand, he's super rich and he's kind of taking care of the family post-partition. So after the partition of India, which if you don't know about, you should read about, he kind of got the family back on their feet and he's sort of the patriarch of the family, even if Lali is a little bit older and more established in New Delhi. So he's kind of at the, the the whim of this man who's financially ensured the survival of his family. And so in his mind, in Lalit's mind, I think he looks at Varun and kind of wants him to live up to a certain expectation so that he can make his uncle proud or make, you know, this this, this brother-in-law proud. Mm-hmm. So Varun is, is hilarious because he's like, I'm a 90s child <laughs> and I will hear none of this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm a child of the 90s. Um, but then we also have this incredibly sweet love story between Dubay and Alice. Um, Dubay is the event planner. Alice is the maid for the family. And I fucking love Dubay. He is such a weirdo and he's kind of a mess. <laughs> Even though he's running like a very profitable and successful business, like he's just so hilarious and weird. And everything he says it sounds like he's hustling you, even if he's telling you the truth. Like, his his demeanor is hilarious. Uh, but he lives with his mother, and, and he has a calculator watch. And whenever he's giving any kind of financial, <laughs> like, yeah. he's giving any kind of financial update to Lalit, he's like, this is the cost exactly and approximately. So he's just, like, constantly like, yeah, this is it for now, but it could go up at any point. And I just love him. Like, his energy is so hyper and he kind of has like a like he's trying you can see him striving so hard to create a life where he's successful in this way and Alice is the the Verma's maid and she's so sweet and so cute and she she really likes Dubay as soon as she meets him because they're all there kind of getting the wedding stuff together and she asks him if he wants water and she kind of cares to him and takes care of him and like is interested in him and is Friends and coworkers, like everyone working for him, makes fun of him for it. But there's the cutest scene where he tries to flirt and like gives her his business card. And it's just very, very sweet to watch them kind of dance around each other. And, yeah. it, you know, again, in the midst of this, he's promising the world to Lalit, like, yeah, I'll waterproof your 10, but it's going to cost you 5,000 bucks. And he's, you know, Lalit's like freaking out. So every time Dubay's on the sea and it's like, Lily or somebody in the family's freaking out on him because <laughs> he needs to do something, but it's also going to cost them more money. I like that they gave these characters a romance. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like, because they're kind of, you know, obviously they're kind of classified as like, I don't know, quote unquote, the help, right? It's like, they're sort of uh, uh, not a part of the family. They're kind of, you know, obviously helping the family or employed by the family. And just the idea that they have... A story arc like that is really cool to me. Yeah, it's super sweet because it also gives a different 
is a different tinge to this this story that's about an arranged marriage and you're wondering whether or not this couple can find love and then you're watching a more natural love at first sight situation happening in real mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Um, so it's just showing the different... I like that the film shows the different ways that people can fall in love or can find love with each other. Right. And there's a bit of a... a, a there's a point in the, in the film where Dubé's kind of watching Alice and she's she's very sneakily kind of trying on the wedding jewelry. And you can tell that she's sort of fantasizing about her own wedding day and, you know, her own station in life. Because the Vermas are kind of an upper-class family. So she, you know, were, if she were to get married, this probably wouldn't be the way she would do it. But she's kind of fantasizing and having fun. And he's just enjoying watching her. And then all of his coworkers and employees come around and they're like, yo, she's stealing that shit. And they start causing a fucking ruckus and she's embarrassed. And so there's a point in the film where... You know, because they accuse her of stealing, she kind of pulls away from Dubai and he gets super depressed. But then there's another sweet, just the sweetest scene in the film where they kind of all, like, he leaves for the day and he's so sad he can't even work. And then all of the coworkers and employees kind of rally around Alice and are like, we're so sorry. We totally messed up. Like, we didn't mean it. It's just really sweet to see them trying to kind of, they, they realize they've messed up in a bigger way and they're trying to to kind of fix it, which is sweet. So yeah, so this is the kind of the 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 core of the film is about all of these folks and everyone else in their orbit. Um, and I because it's so sprawling, I don't want to ruin anything intentionally, but I will say there are just so many moments that I just absolutely love. Like there's this song, there's this song that they're singing during the henna ceremony. Oh, and it's just so cool to see like all these women around just kind of, you know, they're doting on Aditi, like the bride. And it's just really... I love seeing those cultural moments and I love seeing those moments that remind you that this is an event for everyone. Like they make they make it so that everyone who's in attendance has a role or a job or some some involvement in helping this day be be beautiful. Um mm-hmm. I also love there's like these little moments where you see that her mom, that Pimi, has been kind of collecting these saris since the day she was born and keeping them in this little case and you know, but she's, you know, Pimi and Lolita are also really sad. Like, they're like, we're getting, we're, our daughter's going away. <laughs> like, we know that we were trying to plan for this moment, but in the midst of all the craziness of the wedding, like, they really stop and consider that, like, their daughter is moving on and moving into another country and mm-hmm. moving away. And then we also have, I, I don't know, I just, I kind of like seeing the, the parents kind of mourning in the midst of this happiness that they have. Mm-hmm. You also have this great scene where Aditi meets up with Vikram, uh, the person she's having an affair with, and she has sex with him like the day before her wedding, essentially. And the cops show up because they're just parked somewhere off the road and it's raining like crazy. And she steals the car to get away from the cops because she's so scared. Yeah. But then she also makes a really incredible decision where, you know, she's kind of talking to her cousin and she says, you know, I have to tell Hemant about Vikram. Like, I I can't start this marriage with lies. And she does. You know, she tells him that she's had sex with her ex, essentially, and they're one day away from the wedding and we're not sure what's going to happen at all. But then, you know, Hemant really shows himself to be kind of a stand-up dude because he's like, we can get past this. I understand. Like, my heart's been broken too. And this actor, the, the actor who plays Hemant, um, Parvin DeBas, is so cute. He's so fucking gorgeous. It yeah. is like, like, girl, forget that ex. Just move to goddamn Texas with this dude. He's, above all else, kind and sweet. But he's hot. Like, you can move t- to Texas for a hot guy. Like, just try yeah. it. Yeah. 
That's like the one thing I love about Mira Nair's movies is that there's like a sensualness to them. Yeah. And I mean, obviously with Mississippi Masala, I mean, that's probably one of the most sensual movies I've ever seen in my life. But, you know, just the interactions between these characters, like these in these romantic situations, there's like something sensual and sexy about it, you know, that and that the the scene you're talking about really, really reminds me of it. Just this way that she's able to like she's basically making this. I don't know, Robert Altman-esque sort of family movie with a lot of characters, but she still can, like, distill these, like, moments of, like, romance and sensuality. It's, like, really good. Man, love it. Absolutely. And it it happens again in another one of my favorite scenes where Aisha has planned this dance with Varun, but he's like, I'm not doing this fucking dance because my family's being a pain in the ass and telling me that I can't be a chef when I grow up. So she asks Rahul to dance with her, and he's really shy and kind of won't do it. And then one of the the aunts goes up and is like, you can't win if you don't play the game, essentially. And so they have this really sweet moment where he kind of, like, pushes another guy out of the way and, like, dances with Aisha because he knows the dance. He's seen them practicing it for, like, days. And it's, again, like, sensual and fun. And, like, you're kind of watching them dance around each other and then with each other. And then everyone joins in and they're kind of, like, their romance kind of brings people together. It's just very... Yeah. Very wonderful. It's a wonderful tool that my, that Mira Nair is able to use to kind of emphasize um, the beauty of these characters and you know individually yeah. and collectively. I just love it. I love yeah. it. And then there's also there's a point in the movie. I don't want to tell. I won't reveal the super duper ending, but I will say <laughs> there's a point in the film about 20 minutes away from the end of the movie where I start crying and basically don't stop until it ends. And what's wild is that when I first start crying or being sad, it, it, it's because of sadness. Like, it sh- but it shifts emotionally from sadness to joy. And I think that Mira Nair is such a fucking miracle in this way as a director that you could be watching the same scene and run through seventeen different emotions while you're watching one scene. Yeah. It's just, it's truly. I think because she's so adept at nailing down the the kind of complexity of the human condition that she just nails it every time and brings all these different emotional components into a scene that you, you can't even believe the ride you're going on in one viewing, but it's, it's very interesting. I think that it's um, the, the dark vein in the movie that I've been talking about is that basically Rhea has been watching Tej, this rich uncle from the States kind of grooming Aaliyah, who's one of the younger girls in the family. And, since he's the patriarch of the family, nobody quite knows. She doesn't quite know what to do, but she eventually makes a pretty stunning revelation, and it wrecks Lalit. And you know he knows that he needs her for the wedding, but he's indebted to the uncle. But he also acknowledges her pain, and it's just it's yeah deeply complex. And so I think that she's able to come through that moment with all the emphasis and again complexity that you want and need in that scene. And then move you instantly to a place where, again, five minutes later, you're like joyful and laughing and in in the moment in a whole different way. Yeah. Um, so I just I love it. I think the the end of this movie is is fantastic. Yeah, man, what an amazing movie to watch during the summer. Like it's a great like, you know, film so bright and so texture there's so many characters it's like you're kind of just like dropped into this event Mm -hmm. and you're just watching all the different 
like you said, the moving parts kind of working together. But it really makes me want to go to India. I really want to go to India. Oh, my God. (laughs) I've never been. I've never been. I don't know if you've been. but um, I haven't, and I would fucking love to go. I think that it's it's on my absolute tops of my wish list. And I think the only reason that I haven't gone so far is it feels like a place I'd want to go for a long time because there are a lot of different aspects of India to explore. So I wouldn't want it to be just like, a five-day trip like it would have to be like a month or more and so yeah. i just haven't really gotten that port to that point in my life where i could do that but i'm going one day i'm going i actually i absolutely have to i think it's you know and again there's so much to discover and learn and really just not do the midnight express tour of india just really do the opposite like in, in, embed yourself in the culture and just pay attention to and listen to people that live there and experience things there but it's just so vibrant and cool and i don't know if you've ever been to um an indian wedding or but they're just so fucking fun they're so much fun and it's just yeah yeah, i don't know i think that there's it's i have to go i have to go one day i love it yeah if 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 there's anybody out there that's listening and wants to organize a month-long trip to india for danielle and i please Ah! email us at i saw what you did pod at gmail.com look you never know listen i'm putting it out there in the universe i'm just saying Uttering the words. You put it That's out there and somebody contacted us to take a cruise. <laughs> so it, exactly. it's not the weirdest thing that could happen. It's not weird at all that it could happen. Just um, say the words. <laughs> say them. Speak them into existence. But yeah, watch watch Monsoon Wedding. It has a fucking great soundtrack. Like, it's just yes. such a good movie, top to bottom. I cannot believe that this is Sabrina Dewan's first screenplay, but it's like, it's magic. It's lightning in a bottle kind of magic. And I just adore this film and will watch it every time I think of it. Yeah. Well, thanks for picking it. It was, it needed to clear the room of the Midnight Express vibe. (laughs) So not to say that Midnight Express is this terrible movie in that way, but you know what I mean? It's just after watching something heavy like that, it's nice to kind of be brought back into the the light the lightness or the the colors the happiness of the wedding and the romance so yes. i appreciated it um excellent well look i loved this week um i'm glad that we got to talk about these movies and if you want to email us about them or about anything else you can email us at i saw what you did pot at gmail.com and you can find us on our social media at i saw pot on instagram and twitter uh, we also have merch. Go to the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right Shop to find it. And you you know we have bonus episodes coming out all the time. I don't even need to tell you. Just check your feed like once a week on a Wednesday and there'll be a, probably a new bonus, an old bonus up. Um, but our new bonus episodes come out once a month, third Thursday of every month. And the rest of the month, they're just populating those old episodes into that feed faster than you can think of it. Exactly. Well, next episode... These movies, it's going to be a good one. I think it's going to be great. Um, Our films next week are Attack the Block from 2011 and Earth Girls Are Easy from 1988. Oh my gosh. Guess the theme, guess the theme. Danielle, as always, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. I loved it. It was so fun. See you soon. This has been an Exactly Right production, produced by Casey O'Brien, mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel, artwork by Garrett Ross. 
Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ISawPod. And you can email us at ISawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.